It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Inequalities in health and the origin of ill health are problems for which the solutions lie, in many respects, outside the healthcare sector. This is a quote from a major report commissioned in the UK in 1980. Its lead author, clinician and medical scientist Douglas Black, concluded that to remedy disease disparities, the government needed to put more money into public education, public health, and social services, and also tax the wealthy at higher rates to make society a little bit more equal. The report made waves in health policy circles. It resulted in the WHO leading an assessment of health disparities in a dozen countries. But the recommendations didn't really gain any traction among policymakers. And that's not the first time that recommendations from researchers like this haven't really been heeded. The plutocracy, which draw very large amounts from the Upper Silesian mines, did not recognize Upper Silesians as human beings, but only as tools. This is an excerpt of the writing of Rudolf Virchow, a scientist in the 19th century in Prussia, in an area that's now Poland. And he was asked to go investigate some typhus epidemics going on in this mining region called Upper Silesia. He documented all of these sort of social factors that went into why people in this region were hit so hard by typhus. And those included illiteracy and working without any protections. And so kind of rather than just saying poverty leads to disease, he actually went further and said, Let's talk about the system that leads to people being poor. And then he proposes something he calls a radical solution. The worker must have part in the yield of the whole. There are countless more examples of reports from scientists like this, pointing towards the importance of social disparities in public health. And yet, in the USA at least, very little has changed right up until this pandemic. My name is Amy Maxman. I've been reporting on the pandemic since its beginnings, and last fall I stepped back from writing news with an MIT Night Science Journalism Fellowship. During those months, I spent a lot of time reading about the history of public health. But as I was doing that, I wanted to make sure that I was still seeing what was happening during this unprecedented time. I wanted to report. And some of the things I had been reading about were playing out in my own backyard in California. In this podcast, I'm going to take you with me through some of the last eight months of my reporting in part of California called the San Joaquin Valley. When I first started reporting, I wasn't really sure where it was going to take me, so I didn't take a fancy recording kit with me. This podcast is just made up of recordings from my phone or notes I grabbed as I went. 
so you're going to hear me talking to my sources or typing while I'm doing the interviews. This isn't a slick audio production. It's just my journey, and it's one I won't soon forget. This is a Coronapod special. In this episode, one reporter's journey to investigate the deadly toll of inequality. I'm in a small town called El Cerrito, which is near Oakland and near San Francisco. And just about two and a half to three hours away from me is the San Joaquin Valley. And that was where this summer COVID was really surging, far more so than where I am in the Bay Area. It was an outbreak. Everyone was like over 300 people tested positive. Wow. It's not a lifestyle choice. They work in packing houses. They work in the fields. And if people's lives are in danger and people are not even aware of it, they don't have the right to choose, there's going to be consequences for that. The San Joaquin Valley is like an agricultural heartland. That's where a lot of the food that feeds the U.S. is grown. Uh, uh, Sunflowers. Almonds. More almonds. There's also a lot of meat packing plants there and food processing plants. The majority of the people who work on the farms or in the plants are immigrants, and most of those immigrants are Latino or Latinx. If the San Joaquin Valley were its own state, it would be one of the poorest in the U.S. This is Leo Diaz, 60 years old. It could have been me sitting at my breakfast table eating pozole. He died after 20 years. When COVID was surging over the summer, I was just feeling like I want to be reporting, you know, where COVID is is really bad and just see what's going on. In the back of my head, though, I had a secondary question because it's actually not surprising that COVID would have been so bad in an area where there's a lot of essential workers, where there's a lot of poverty. Anybody who studies public health would have predicted as much. So in my head was this question, okay, so if it's so predictable, why haven't they been able to prevent it? I drove to the San Joaquin Valley. I stayed in a small Airbnb in southwest Fresno. I went knowing that I was going to seek out talking to a lot of agricultural workers. It was kind of clear that that's where the problem was. And I just sort of began by getting in touch with different grassroots organizations the injustice, the uh-huh. social injustice, yes. uh, they are not treated like human beings should be treated. This is Aurelia Maceda Mendez. She's the one speaking Spanish. The English-speaking voice is Sandy Sirius, a translator who was helping me talk with her. Right off the bat, these were the kinds of things I was being told by farm workers. There is no necessity to live like this. No. We are all battling something in, at this moment. And this is the time that we need to show solidarity amongst all of us, not only in this country, but it's yeah. all over the world. Yeah. I met Aurelia because she was helping to lead one of the community organizations that was involved in COVID outreach. So I met her in her office, which is in downtown Fresno, the biggest city in the San Joaquin Valley. We talked about, you know, kind of where she's from, her experience in the U.S., 
what she hears from her community, the kind of treatments her community takes for COVID, you know, what they do when they don't have health care, this sort of thing. Then, you know, after meeting her in her office, I went to a park that was sort of nearby and, and talked with somebody else there. But she came out afterwards because she just had more to say to me. And this part of it was, I guess, just the rawest, pure emotions that, you know, our interview earlier had sort of stirred up in her. They need to, we need to bring it to light who the essential worker is. The essential worker is the person who is undocumented, an immigrant undocumented, that doesn't have any benefits for unemployment or anything like that. That's why they have to work. And while all the stores shut down and everything shut down, uh, they were working. They never stopped working. She now talks with so many people in her community that were going through so many really difficult things. And I guess she just really wanted to drive that home, that it, it wasn't just covid it was sort of the entire context of what was happening in the U.S. and what had been happening in their lives for the last decade. Even though the farm workers are now being seen as essential, they were always essential, and they have uh, no rights. If we had um, a system of wages, just um, equal wages or just uh, good wages, yeah. and if we had a set of laws that protect the workers, then we wouldn't be in the mess that we have. So far in the pandemic, 32 million people have tested positive for COVID in the U.S. Black and Latinx people and indigenous Americans are roughly three times more likely to be hospitalized and twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as white non-Hispanic people. Over 11 million low-wage workers lost their job during the pandemic, while the highest earners actually gained over a million jobs. But you need more than numbers to understand what's going on. So that's why I went on this trip. I talked to dozens of people. I heard their stories firsthand. In this podcast, I'm going to share just one of those stories. It's about Hardeep Singh and his mother. So what are your mom's normal well, work hours? Or, and oh, then, she did? Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So maybe you should, you should tell me about what were the conditions yeah, like. Yeah, so and that's how I got like, really frustrated with foster yeah. farms. I think a lot of my reporting is often like, you know, one person suggests talking to another person, suggests talking to another person. So it was along one of those trails that I had followed. And I met Hardeep on my second visit. His father is a farm worker who had actually been disabled in an accident on a tractor. But his mother was still working. She's 63, but she was still working in a chicken packing plant called Foster Farms, which is you know, across California, I think they have some plants on the East Coast as well. He's their son. He's actually enrolled in medical school, and he's also doing a dual degree in public health. But he was home because of, you know, the coronavirus was spreading, so school was now online. So he went home to live with his parents. When the pandemic started, I was like, Mom, be careful, you know, like the ventilation system at your place isn't the best, so make sure you're wearing your mask. Like, just like doing my own yeah. teaching, like she didn't really get the teaching from foster farms. Yeah. Foster Farms had had an outbreak. So at some point, their plant had instituted testing systems so that they test workers sort of on a rotating basis, say roughly every two weeks. But his mother doesn't speak English. She doesn't have a smartphone. So he sort of signed up to get the automated text messages from the Foster Farms testing system. My mom was tested Mondays and Thursdays, I mm -hmm. believe. And then, so she was negative for like, you know, a good chunk of time, like a, a month or so, uh, about like, you know, eight or eight-ish tests. 
you know, there was kind of some signs that were making him worried. First of all, Foster Farms had had outbreaks. And then his mother came home and said that she thinks that maybe 140 people at her plant had COVID. And I was like, how did you find out? Did they tell you? She's like, no, there was like a little like note in the notice board area that mentioned that in English only. And mind you, there's like Spanish speakers, Hmong speakers and Punjabi speakers and very like foster farm employees like who work at assembly lines uh-huh. very little of them uh, know like you know they're fluent English so I was like how did you know like how, do you don't even read English she's like oh I read the n- word number 140 like 140 but I don't know if it was um like what else like you know it was all in English she also noticed that the factory floor was a lot emptier like it was drastically emptier so she felt like there must be an outbreak going on now he doesn't know what to make of it because She doesn't speak English, so she couldn't read the sign herself. So he asked her to ask one of her colleagues who has a phone to take a photo of the sign so that she could bring it home and he could translate it. But the coworker was worried that she would get in trouble for taking photos inside, which she said they're not allowed to do. And then a few days later, she says the sign is gone. So Hardeep is really worried about his mom. And a couple of weeks later, those fears turn out to be true. He gets a text message that's automated from the Foster Farms testing system. And it says that his mother is positive. This was around 1.20 p.m. Like, I'm freaking out, right? Because yeah. I was exposed. Because mm-hmm. I was dropping and picking her up because, you know, I don't want her to carpool for the same reasons yeah. before she was carpooling with four people. I, I call her. She didn't answer. I'm like, oh, she's probably on the line. I'm like, well, if they told me, why can't they tell her she's right there? At 4.30, she calls me. She's like, hey, can you pick me up? I pick her up and... I'm like, mom, like she sat in the front, like you have to sit in the back, like I had the windows down. She's like, why are you acting weird? I was like, oh, like you tested positive for COVID, no one told you? She was like, no, like she's like, I was working. I was like, like I got your results at 120, you work till 430. So that's like three hours of extra exposure. And I'm sure that's how my mom got it because they were doing the same thing with yeah. everyone else. And then I was like, did they tell you not to come to work tomorrow? She's like, no, I'm expected to um, go to this line and like work. He tells her, listen, you're positive, and he doesn't want her to go into work because, you know, the CDC recommends if you're positive, stay home 10 days after the day that you test positive so that you don't spread the coronavirus. And she slowly begins to feel sicker. So when she was tested, she didn't have symptoms, but she gets them later on. And he keeps calling Foster Farms, trying to reach a supervisor just to say, my mom's not coming in. And also, can she please, you know, get paid sick leave because she's now positive, but he can't reach them. And he hears that you need a doctor's note. He's trying to find a doctor who can write her a note to verify that she should be staying home from work. He's trying to get the family tested. It's just a very stressful time. And it's not until Monday that he reaches somebody from Foster Farms. At this point, it's been five days since she tested positive. And I got a call saying, oh, uh, may I speak with my mom's name? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, may I take a message for her? She's next to me, but she doesn't speak English. Unless you speak Punjabi, you can talk to her. They're like, no, you can take a message. We just, they're like, we just wanted to let you know that she tested positive. I was like, I'm no, I've known this since Wednesday. Yeah. Like, you guys didn't do anything. Well, like, you know, like a wishy-washy answer. Really? Um, and then I'm like, okay, so... The only thing she said was she's expected to return to work next Thursday. So they say she gets these next three days off. So we don't know what goes through Foster Farms' head. You know, is it was it a mistake? Is it intentional? That's something I don't know and might never might never know. But suffice to say, it's, it was a really stressful period for him. And you know, the other thing 
that's in his head as somebody who understands public health is, you know, what do all those families do that don't have somebody like him advocating on behalf of their parents? Until now, this board has failed the hardworking communities of Cantua Creek, Three Rocks, Lanier, Riverdale, Kawa, and so many others. And I know this because they call my cell phone and tell me what it has been during this pandemic. This is Leslie Martinez speaking at a meeting organized by Fresno's leaders last July. Specifically, it's the Board of Supervisors who oversee the county's pandemic response. I wasn't at this meeting, but it's recorded, so I watched it online. Families have lost all their income. I am tired of getting these phone calls because of this board's lack of leadership. Leslie is from the Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability in Fresno. Community organizations like this one and Aurelia's became increasingly upset as last summer wore on. During that time, a number of them even banded together to demand help for communities of essential workers. Residents are once again asking for the same things that they have been asking for since March. You can look at the public record. It is in my letters and it is in the comments that I have stayed up writing for none of you to acknowledge or to be read aloud. The people I'm writing about have a really difficult time advocating for themselves, often because they're really, really vulnerable. So these community groups got together and they started pushing for a lot of things. Often it would be pushing the health department to say they want to have free testing that would be brought to the site of farms. They wanted to make sure that it was coupled with paid sick leave, whether that's from companies or from the county. They also wanted rules about having farms and food packing plants to have to report when they have cases. And they were telling the county that they needed to be involved with the response. They were saying, listen, we know these communities, like you don't know these communities, and this is where COVID is spreading. And also a lot of the communities they were talking about don't trust the government and may not even trust like medical authorities. So they were asking to be a part of the response. There is no accountability on this board for the hundreds of community members that have been asking to participate with you all. They are asking for you all to invest in democracy. Your neighbors next door were able to set up a phone call. You can all do that too. All of the community-based organizations really felt like they were being ignored throughout April, May, June, and into July. You know, I talked to Fresno City Council. I know all of these names get confusing. So you've got the County Board of Supervisors that are really the leaders. So they kind of have a lot of the say. The health department is often like civil servants. So they sort of carry out some of the tasks. And then you've got the city of Fresno, some of the leaders in the city of Fresno, who is within the county of Fresno. I'm sorry about all of this. But they were also really pushing the board, saying, you know, we need testing on farms. We need sick leave. And they were met with a lot of hostility because you have to think about there's different sides here. The entire economy of the San Joaquin Valley is based on agriculture. So you've got farms and meatpacking companies that bring in most of the money. So politicians there are often representing the interests of the agriculture companies. So there's this real friction that starts to form between them. And, you know, somebody from the city council told me that somebody on the board told him, stay out of our lane. We're not going to disrupt agriculture at the peak of harvest. Now, I should say that I asked a member of the board about this comment, and he said he's never heard that anybody on the board said such a thing. But think about it. If you're offering people testing and sick leave and, you know, even quarantine if their coworkers tested positive, that's going to make those farms 
less productive, especially when, you know, we're on a seasonal basis and there's a time to harvest and there's a time when you can't harvest. I once asked the head of the Fresno County Health Department, why isn't there support for quarantine? So if your coworker who you work next to tests positive, there's no rule saying that anybody has to tell you that that happened. And he said, they're essential workers. So, you know, they have to keep working. I was shocked, but to be clear, this rule isn't his call. Health departments don't have the power to make decisions like this. But nonetheless, this all felt very familiar to me. Remember this quote? The plutocracy did not recognize Upper Silesians as human beings, but only as tools. The worker must have part in the yield of the whole. In August, when COVID was at its peak in the San Joaquin Valley, something did happen. The governor sent a strike team to Fresno to figure out what was going on. He allotted the county a bigger budget, and he said it should target the disproportionate number of Hispanic people getting COVID. They accounted for about 60% of all cases at that point. That's when community organizations got the money for outreach, local testing centers, and grants for people that were unable to work to help them pay rent and to help them keep the lights on. I spoke to many people that might have been saved from homelessness by these actions. But there's still a long way to go to tackle the underlying issues. And that brought me back to my first question. This wasn't a surprise. Public health research has been predicting events like this for over a century. So where were the public health researchers? Although there were some scientists involved in these efforts who were providing data and so on, for the people of the San Joaquin Valley, it was these community groups that drove change. And I'm a science reporter, so I really wanted to understand this. So I spoke to a lot of public health researchers. The public health researchers and officials I've talked to are divided. There's different sides of it. You know, there's some people that are super disappointed that public health hasn't been stronger. For example, we could talk about CDC reports that have pointed out big disparities, like how more Black and Hispanic people have been hospitalized and have died from COVID, and that link this to things like essential work and crowded households and low labor protections. But in the solution area, you know, they'll say, this is why we recommend hand washing and social distancing. There's a lot of criticism within academia of some researchers saying, you know, we really need to be speaking out about these more political things. And then I think it's also important to bring up the reality of the way in which governments are structured and that it's not like the public health department of Fresno can say, no, everybody needs to get paid sick leave and they need to be able to quarantine because they're actually not in charge. I don't know if it's a failing of the public health system itself so much as a, as a failing of kind of certain kind of policy or political ideologies, which in the U.S. historically have very much focused on individuals. This is Ronald Labonte, a Canadian public health researcher who had a lot to say about why researchers in the U.S., might not speak up so much about the so-called social determinants of health. Things like wages, workers' rights, discrimination, racism, the things that are outside of medical science that public health research shows really matters. I think that the only way they're going to be not silent on those fronts is if there is an administration in Washington mm. that is, is prepared to basically um, bring the wrath 
of the, the, the 45 or 48% of the population that for some reason ignores the kinds of evidence we have about, about what is needed right now and right. why, um, and decides to go forward and, and, and take that risk. I talked to so many people in the public health field, and I think a lot of them understand that there are reasons why the status quo has been maintained. To put it as bluntly as I can, the way that people get rich is to exploit other people. This is what you'll find in, you know, Rudolf Virchow's report from 1848. You can make a big profit by paying low wages and by pushing aside worker protections or environmental regulations. Poverty is the outcome. What drives it is essentially oppression, exploitation, and power. And profit is the is the is the kind of metaphor for that. It's 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 right. the it's the lingua franca, but it's it's not what the power actually is. It's just what what gets you power. He did kind of put it really bluntly for me, and I think some of the people that have been pushing on the social determinants of health for a long time will agree with him. You know, I and a few others, actually, some of the some of the epidemiologists in the States have sort of said, we should stop studying the poor and stop defining the problem as poverty. We need to mm-hmm. um, define the problem as wealth or capital uh-huh. accumulation, and we need to start studying the wealthy. And then there's other people I've talked to, I should just say, other public health researchers who understand that there are political barriers to improving some of the controversial measures like raising wages. And they might say, listen, we're not going to have the revolution, but let's at least like get immunizations out there for children. I believe that the way to uh, get what we need and what we want is for us as a community, as advocate to demand to stop and, and say this is what we need and we demand it for them to, whoever it is, listen and do something. To see it myself, I mean, now when I go to the grocery store and I see grapes and they're, you know, $3 for a bunch, it kind of hurts my heart because I know what went into making them so cheap. I want to also point out something that's tricky about the story is although I'm pointing out gaps in public health, big gaps in public health. Public health researchers have had the hardest time last year. I mean, in the U.S., they have been harassed. They've gotten death threats. You know, there is a report from Kaiser Health News that found, you know, there's been the biggest exodus of public health officials ever in the U.S. I don't want to say, why aren't they doing more? Because, listen, they're trying, and it's really, really hard. So it's kind of like a criticism of the field, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge this is really tricky, contentious territory. This podcast was reported and recorded by me, Amy Maxman, and it was produced by Noah Baker. For more on the story, please read the feature article I wrote about it. We're going to put a link in the show notes. Quick note, Hardeep Singh is not his real name. He didn't want to use his real name because he worried it could affect the employment of his family members who work at Foster Farms, the chicken packing plant. For the story, I contacted Foster Farms, and so they sent me a statement to say that the company is committed to the health and welfare of its employees and that they're now offering vaccines. 
As for specific complaints, like Hardeep's, they said that all employees have been encouraged to share any concerns with their supervisors. I also want to thank two organizations that supported the travel costs for this piece, the Pulitzer Center and the MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellowship. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.